Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 31, OWLS. Ron's euphoria at helping Gryffindor scrape the Quidditch Cup was such that he could not settle to anything next day. All he wanted to do was talk over the match and Harry and Hermione. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Tekhile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Hi, everybody. A couple of announcements before we get started today. One is that we have been announcing the wrong date for my London Live event. You guys should all go to the Quaker House on June 8th. It'll be great. Yeah, I'll just be in rural England. I won't be there. (laughs) But on June 18th, I'll super be there. So if you bought your ticket on Eventbrite because you thought it was on June 8th, just email us at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. The Eventbrite is correct. So if that's how you do your calendar, you're doing great. I'm so sorry. Of course, we'll reimburse you if you've bought tickets, but you can't make it on the 18th. But hopefully you can, because the 18th is a fun date in London. It's high. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Vanessa, we're hitting the road again soon. We're going to Holyoke, Massachusetts on May 8th to visit our friend Marissa. Come join us for a full live show if you live in the Western Mass area or elsewhere in New England. Make it a drive. We'd love to see you. And then Ariana and I will be in Cambridge, Massachusetts on May 14th where we are going to be doing a Women of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text hometown live show. And I'll also be in Paris on June 22nd at a very small event, only 50 tickets available, but there will be snacks. June 22nd, meet my mom, hang out with me in Paris. That'll be so much fun. My mom is adorable. Vanessa, my story this week is on the theme of celebration. And I immediately thought back to the childhood ritual that we had at home of birthdays. Now, in my family, birthdays are like, a thing, but only from like waking up until 9am. After that, it's kind of less exciting. But here you go. You wake up. Oh my God, it's your birthday. The first thing you do is you look under your pillow because there's a birthday present under your pillow, which in Dutch is called het bedkadoje, literally the bed present. And (laughs) usually it's like some stickers or, you know, like just something very nice and very small. So you start off with a present. So you know it's going to be a good day. Then you open your eyes. Maybe you've opened your eyes before. And you look around and there's a big Dutch flag hanging next to your bed. We don't know why, but it's hanging there. Then everyone else is like getting ready and you can hear things going on downstairs, but you're not allowed to leave your room until dad comes upstairs and then you have to climb onto your dad's back and then he carries you down the stairs. This is great when you're eight, but when you're 17 and you still insist that your dad carries you down, he becomes less of a fan. And then as you walk in... You don't walk in. Your dad walks you in. That is correct. Um, as you're walked in, your chair is decorated and everyone is singing. So when I think about celebration, I think about 
the ways in which like we ritualize celebration, that we do things year on year. And that's what makes the celebration meaningful. Because, I mean, ultimately, it's just a random day, right? But we've turned it into something special of your birthday. And what makes it special is doing those traditions and hanging those flags and decorating the chairs. So I'm I'm interested to see how the characters kind of create rituals at all around celebration in this chapter. Well, I am very excited about talking about rituals, but I also think that there are spontaneous celebrations that are non-ritual based, which I'm also excited to talk to you about. And I like to spontaneously celebrate when I beat you in the 30-second recap. You have 30 seconds on the clock, starting now. So it's time to take the OWLs. It's all very stressful. In one of the OWLs, Harry, like, falls asleep and has a dream and sees Sirius being tortured. That happens at the end, though, so I'm going to go back. (laughs) Hermione is super stressed about all of the OWLs. Ron is on cloud nine. They see Hagrid getting, like, taken away, and McGonagall tries to defend Hagrid, and she gets stunned three times, and this is all during an astronomy exam. And the teacher is like, ah, you have five minutes left, which is, like, again, not great pedagogy. What I love most is that you didn't bury the lead. No. You're a good journalist. If it bleeds, it leads. (laughs) If it bleeds, it leads. That is the rule for local news. That's brutal. Okay, Casper, let's see how you handle our news events for tonight. I'm going to kick it to you over in weather in three, two, one. Go. Strong gust of umbrage coming through our high altitude systems today. Also, wetness from the tears we're crying as we see Hagrid have to leave. I mean, he is like really pummeled. There's like six people that come with umbrage in the dead of night to take him down, but he's strong and he resists all their spells. Um, and um, yes, Harry then in the history of magic, which is the last exam, has this vision where he's walking through the corridors and there on the ground is a figure and he looks up and it's Sirius Black. Vanessa, let's start right at the beginning of the chapter where we have this very sweet experience of celebration, which is Ron, right? He's still basking in the glory of winning the Quidditch Cup. And what really struck me is that for him, celebration is really about like reliving his experience. So he keeps telling the stories and he doesn't want to leave Gryffindor Common Room because people keep going up to him and talking to him about it. Like his experience of celebration is kind of being elongated by just continuously telling that story. And I wondered what you thought about that connection between storytelling and celebration. I saw it a little bit differently. So I'm going to sidestep your question in order to try to get to an answer, which is I saw it as when you are celebrating something, everything else gets put on hold. Right. So it's like if we're celebrating your birthday and we are otherwise in a time of sadness, but we're like, do you know what? We're going to put sadness on hold to celebrate Casper. The Grop News is put on hold. Studying for OWLs is put on hold. Like, we're all busy celebrating Ron. And so I wonder if that does get to your point about storytelling, because celebration is trying to distill things down to a simple joy, and therefore it, like, narrows the narrative. So the only story that is being told is of Ron's heroism and not of all of these other things that we know are happening. I mean, like literally happening at the same time with Grot. 
Vanessa, this is so cool because this is something I was just reading about. I was reading a, a Russian Orthodox theologian called Alexander Shmeman, and he's talking about how celebrations are something that, exactly like you're saying, it doesn't matter what else is happening. We should celebrate the moment when there's a celebration. Like we should not try and compare it to other things or try to connect it to other things. Like this joyful thing is full in itself and it should sustain our full attention. And his kind of theological idea is that from that is actually where we gain our courage and our joy and our capacity to imagine a different world if we keep coming back to those celebrations. So I, I love that point that, you know, OWL exams and these other things are kind of put aside for Ron's big moment. But here's my question. It's a bigger moment for Ron than it is for Harry and Hermione. Yes, I do think... Again, shame on Hagrid. I know I've already beat this drum, but like it should be a really big moment for Ron, for Harry and Hermione also, because on a propaganda level, Umbridge tried to bring down the Gryffindor Quidditch <gasps> team. I never thought about that. And she failed, right? She kicked the twins and Harry off the team. She tried to restrict their playing time. She kept Harry from practicing. And this is like a great moment of triumph wow. for a subjugated team. And so it should be more exciting. But I think the scrap thing is really hanging over them. And also, I mean, isn't that always true about celebration, right? Like weddings, it's like mostly about the couple and the rest of us like put our lives on hold. And there's all sorts of peacetime that gets made around weddings, but it's really about two people and birthdays are really about one person and the rest of us are orienting ourselves around them. So it doesn't bother me that, you know, Ron is at the center of the celebration. What bothers me is that Harry and Hermione are distracted from it. This is really a victory for all of them. I love that. I had never thought about this moment when Gryffindor wins the cup as actually being much bigger than just Ron or even the Quidditch team, that it's like this symbolic victory against Umbridge for maybe even, you know, the entire school community that wants to to resist Umbridge. That's really cool. So can I point us to another sort of subversive moment of celebration? Yeah. McGonagall, I think, is still taking a victory lap over Fred and George's triumph by saying... Um, Professor Umbridge really wants you to do well on your exams because it's going to reflect highly on her regime. Don't let that stop you from trying. <laughs> and I feel like Fred and George have created room for that kind of snark. And McGonagall has also triumphed over Umbridge. Umbridge is no longer in her classroom, right? McGonagall has, like, managed Umbridge to the point where she is sort of taking a victory lap by undermining Umbridge in these tiny ways. And I do think celebrations... Just like there can be microaggressions, I think there can be micro-celebrations, right? Where it's just like, guess what I won? I be umbrage in this way. And this is a moral victory and a strategic victory for McGonagall. She's not going to let the fact that she doesn't want umbrage to win to get in the way of her students' education, which I think is, is a like, true moral victory. That's really interesting to me. And especially, I think, because it happens as we get these whole new set of characters entering Hogwarts, right? The examiners arrive and they are all, by the description that we get, very, very old. And the only questions we hear them asking are about Dumbledore. And then this examiner, Madame Marchbank, says, you know, I examined him in charms years ago and he did things with a wand that I've never seen someone do. And, and I think the importance of these new characters into this system and how it relates to celebration is that it's bringing 
Hogwarts back into a normal rhythm, right? Like it's bringing it back into a set of rituals and habits and processes that it's been in for decades and, and many, many years. So that Umbridge's power is kind of diminished. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I like about seasonal celebrations as well, right? It's like, even in the midst of war, we're still going to celebrate Christmas, right? Like my grandparents would tell stories about, yeah, you didn't have presents or you didn't have, like, there's a lot of things that you suddenly don't have in those times of of need. But still marking that moment gives a sense of normality and and I think reduces the power of an imposing force like Umbridge, very importantly. Umbridge is getting lapped at the beginning of this chapter, right? Like Gryffindor wins instead of Slytherin. McGonagall is like taking pokes at her all the time. All the examiners come in and have taken over her school and it's sort of the old regime. And like Dean Thomas is getting these nifflers in through her window, right? Like the, all the subversive actions are pecking away at Umbridge and she does seem to be losing power. Now that she has sort of technical power, she's losing all of her soft power. And I'm wondering if you think that Gryffindor has done one too many victory laps and done one too many celebrations. And that is why she snaps the way that she does so violently at Hagrid and then at McGonagall. Well, what's so interesting is that she's really changed her strategy. It's totally by luck that the the students taking the astronomy exam see her. I'm sure she didn't think that through. But she's trying to do this as a covert operation in the middle of the night, away from the school. She's going to Hagrid's hut with a team of brawn. Um, I hadn't thought of that at all, how different it is from Trelawney's expulsion. Right, because that was such a public humiliation for her. I think she's like, I am not going to risk that again. I'm going to have something smaller, but the celebration will be mine. So I do like this theory that maybe there was too much celebration from her opponents. And so she's like, fine, I'll show you and I'll do it you know, my way and differently. Now it still fails, right? Hagrid gets away. But then that moment where McGonagall comes running, she's heard the kerfuffle. She comes running and say, how dare you? How dare you? And there are, you know, multiple jinxes, you know, red lights that hit her and she's kind of body slammed. Umbridge is one of them, I'm sure. Yeah, because Umbridge is somebody who loves to do things by the book or at least loves to pretend to do things Mm. by the book. And this is just, I feel like she has been put in a corner It's just making me think about strategies on how to fight bullies because we were really honoring George and Fred and the way that they like triumphed against Umbridge. And I do feel as though we collectively like poked the bear too many times. And so the bear snaps and McGonagall, who's an older woman, ends up being the victim of that snapping. You know, in Judaism, there's the expression that the best revenge is a good life. Yeah. And and to some extent, that is like what, you know, the rest of Hogwarts is living. They're like, we're still going to study. We're still going to take our exams. We're still going to win the Quidditch Cup. We are still going to laugh. We're still going to play pranks. Like you can regulate, but like you can't regulate us to death. And they are just trying to live their best life. And I just wonder if like for certain toxic people, any joy is going to create anything other than submission is going to instigate them. Right. And that's why I keep coming back to these examiners, because in the Defense Against the Dark Arts exam, Harry's feeling really good about himself, right? And at the end of the exam, the practical element of the exam, his examiner says to Harry, I've heard you can do a Patronus. For a bonus point, can you summon a Patronus? Harry thinks literally of Umbridge being fired and creates this, you know, fabulously wonderful silver 
stag that like runs through the examining hall. And that speaks exactly to what you're saying, which is like Umbridge can't stop these kids thriving in this context. She, she's kind of at the limit of her powers at this point. And so, so that's what I like about these examiners. They're giving the children a chance to shine and what they're there to do, which is their education. And this moment of I heard you can do an embodied Patronus to Harry was the first time that I saw a reward for Harry's oppression. Ooh. Right. The reason that that got around was because during Harry's trial at the beginning of this book, one of the inquisitors is like, you can do an embodied Patronus. And it sort of gets around the Ministry of Magic that Harry can do this embodied Patronus. And he is now given the opportunity either from that or from Dumbledore saying it or from McGonagall pulling this person aside (laughs) and saying, I swear this child is going to get an ownership, right? Like, for some reason, someone is batting for Harry enough that he is given this opportunity to really show off. And he's celebrated for it. And he's celebrated for it. And, like, his Patronus takes a victory lap. (laughs) Literally. And I think something that, you know, I've been talking about a lot is in reading these books how clear the systemic cycle of oppression builds upon itself, right? How traumatized people keep getting re-traumatized. And once you're in the system, you continuously get oppressed by the system. And this is the first time that we are seeing Harry get a little bit of a leg up because people are pissed off by how much he's getting bullied. And I just loved seeing him get celebrated for a real skill that he has, a talent that he worked on because he had it harder than everybody else, and a talent that he was given the opportunity to perfect because a teacher took an interest in him. I'm just like, I just love this moment of celebration of like Harry being given the chance to show off. Well, and that also builds on his experience in the potions exam, right? We're seeing the potions exam where Neville and Harry, without Snape in the room, are suddenly able to do way better at the core content, right? Like their potions are actually pretty decent. Yeah, I, I'm totally resonating that that the context of all of these exams is shifting some of those systemic dynamics, which they've had to like live between and within And we're seeing new capacities as well as celebrating the ones that we already know they had. I love that. Yeah. So, Vanessa, there's there's two other little moments, and I'm not quite sure how we link them to celebration yet, so I'm hoping you can help me. But in the run-up to the exams, Ernie goes around doing that thing, and we all know who's done it, and maybe we've done it ourselves, which is to ask other students, how many hours are you studying? What's your schedule like? And he's like, well, I'm managing seven to eight hours a day, 10 on a good weekend day. And Ron is like, I've done two hours for the whole year. Um, And then afterwards, Hermione wants to kind of debrief the exam. Like, did you answer this question? What did you think about that question? And to me, it feels like there's something about we can't celebrate ourselves, right? Like Ernie's doing a great job. Look, good for you. You're doing lots of hours. But like we can't celebrate ourselves, whether it's for revision or whether it's for for the actual exam, unless we're sharing it with someone else. Does that make sense? Yeah. I just got to say, I went to high school with all Ernie's. And for us, the big comparison was who got the least sleep the night before. Oh, that's so unhelpful. I hated it. I hated it. I remember standing outside of classrooms waiting to go in for exams and kids being like, well, I only slept one hour last night. Well, I only slept two hours last night. And me being like, 
I got my nine hours. Thank you very much. And I'm going to get a B plus on this and not an A. And guess what? I look amazing. (laughs) I just like, I hate this kind of competitive studying. I just, I think it is like a toxic form of celebration, right? There are good kinds of celebration. And I do think effort should be celebrated. Effort is celebrated by doing well on your exam or by accomplishing whatever you want to accomplish. But showing off in this way seems to be trying to elicit envy. It's not trying to actually celebrate, right? There are housewarming parties that are about, like, come and warm my house. And there are housewarming parties that are about showing off your new house. Come and see my house. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. I am just not interested in the come and see type of celebration. It's not celebratory. I mean, that's the thing. You can feel if something is a come and see my house or like, hey, let's let's celebrate me living here. Like, you can just feel it. You can't even say that it's about, oh, has someone got this kind of drinks and nibbles and decorations? Like, it's in that inner state of being, right? Like, just the way they greet you, the way people are talking to each other. Are people kind of, like, looking around, like, wanting to be seen? Or are they just glad to be together? So Ernie seems to be up to something different than Hermione. Mm. For both of them, I do think it's, like, anxiety processing, I don't think that Hermione is actually trying to compare. Because she knows she's better. (laughs) I mean, she does. She really does. I think that Ernie is trying to assess how well he is doing on studying compared to other people. Whereas Hermione, I think, is actually just trying to process how did I do. Yeah. So one seems like a self-soothing mechanism and the other... Ernie's, it feels like a, a superiority mechanism. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, that's maybe the the shadow underbelly of celebration, which is like in it could be a message of like, I'm better than you. Like my birthday present was bigger than yours. You know, all, all of that kind of my car in the garage is nicer than yours. I found love and you haven't. Right. right? Exactly. Like, like, is the celebration one that that is genuine and it's and it's real? Or is this celebration something you're trying to show off about and you're trying to make other people know that? you're celebrating, which ultimately only points to the kind of hollowness of that celebration. Can you help me unpack this, Vanessa? Because I'm trying to think about like, what? how do you know when it's genuine and real, that, that there's a soul to it? How do we know when a celebration is like that? Well, so I... I will say, like, I don't think we know, right? I don't think that there's, like, a rubric of things that you can check off. But I do think that genuine celebrations are about human connection and not about the things, Mm. right? And I have an aunt who I love very, very much. She's my mom's first cousin. and We go to a lot of Orthodox weddings in my family. And there's, like, a way to do an Orthodox wedding in Los Angeles if you're of a certain income, right? And my aunt has been to so many of these weddings and bar mitzvahs, <laughs> she can comment on like, oh, they use this linen and not that linen. And she is just like gossiping the entire event <laughs> on a level that like I cannot comprehend. She's like, no, they didn't splurge for the linens that touch the floor. Only half tablecloths. I'm like, well, how does it even occur to you to notice those things? But she's more fun to do that at the weddings where she's also happy for the people, Mm. right? And, like, I just think that you can be as, like, grouchy and ungenerous as my aunt, who I love and is super fun and mean, and still, like, really be there for the celebration. So she's, like, still sitting there noticing those things and, like, being obnoxious and being like, I can't believe they didn't splurge on the good sushi, 
You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I do. But I, I love that you said that the celebration, is it about connection? And the same aunt, there's actually a really easy marker with her. Like she's she's older at this point and she has like joint problems. And it's whether or not she like gets up and does the horror, right? And like how long she stays up. And like that's how you can tell if she's into it as a celebration or if she's there for the event, right? Right, to show up, to demonstrate, I'm here, and then I'm gone, thank you very much. Right, but there are certain, like, people's young love who, like, moves her so much that, like, she will get on her feet and dance in a way that other people, she's like, I'm here, I'm supportive, I wrote a check, it's in the box. I mean, Vanessa, what I love about your aunt, like, and whether she's dancing or not, like, those are the signs, right? Those are the indicators of that feeling. And for all of us, those signs may be different, right? Is it that we actually stay later than we planned? Is it that we completely forget about our work and we're just present with what's happening? Like, we, I think we all have those little internal markers that help us know afterwards, hey, that really felt real, you know, or... I was kind of going through the motions and I'm, you know, I'm glad I went, but whatever. And I also don't think it's always a mark of the celebration, right? Sometimes you go to a party even though you're depressed and like you want to show up because you love your friend and like that matters. But I think that's exactly right, Vanessa. Like even in the midst of a depression, to be able to say to someone, I don't really want to come but I want to show you that I'm here. You know, like if you're able to be that kind of honest and real, like then you know that the celebration is real too. I I really think it's about the depth and the intimacy of the connection. That's where you can tell when a celebration counts. So Casper, this is going to be our last Pardes for a little while. Pardes, as everyone knows, is a four-step Jewish reading practice in which we walk through the text as if we are on a jaunt through an orchard and we pick up a piece of text like it is a juicy piece of fruit. So here is the sentence that we picked, the piece of fruit. Even by Harry's low standards in divination, the exam went very badly. So our first step is shot, in which we ask ourselves what the intended meaning of the sentence is. So, of course, throughout this whole year, you know, Harry and Ron have been making up while Mars is entering, you know, retrograde. And so I'm going to fall down the stairs. You know, we've seen them make up silly stories to kind of fulfill Trelawney's homework. And now, of course, they're in Firenze's class, which has become more interesting. Um, But Harry is not particularly skilled at this. And sadly for him, even with his low standards for the exam, I think he's still done very badly. Yeah. Harry uh, reads the lifelines on the palm of the person who's testing him incorrectly and is like, you should have died last week. (laughs) So, yeah, it didn't go great. Which, frankly, with the age of the inspectors, is not entirely unreasonable. Yeah. What if it was just like next week and he was actually pretty close? Right. Um, Okay. Excellent job. So our next step is remez, in which we pick a word that sparkles at us and we try to trace it throughout the seven books and see how that can change our understanding of the sentence. Which word would you like? Even by Harry's low standards in divination, the exam went very badly. I'm kind of intrigued by standards. Ooh, okay. Where else do we see standards in the seven books? Well, the thing I think of immediately is the, is Percy's cauldron, like mm. the standards of the thickness of the bottom of the cauldrons that we learn about, I think, in book four. Yeah. Where else do we see standards? Um, When we hear about 
Gringotts, the like oh. tremendous security standards that are at play in Gringotts. There's all sorts of negotiations that happen in the Triwizard tournament between the three schools about the process of who's allowed to compete and what age and all of that. Um, and so we think about the, you know, the age line which the twins try and cross and they grow the beards. So I'm thinking of that. What else? There again needs to be standards for getting into the Order of the Phoenix. You have to be 17. I mean, I'm also suddenly thinking about the different textbooks that the student use, right? The standard book of spells Mm -hmm. is one that we hear about a lot. Mm -hmm. And there are definitely references. I think just even that word standard shows up in news travels fast around Hogwarts, even by Hogwarts' standards. When... Hermione is able to turn a galleon into like that communication tool. The kids are like, but that's N-E-W-T standard, not O-W-L standard. This is making me think of something in the next book where we're going to actually, and this is a different way of thinking about standard. Harry is going to use the Half-Blood Prince's potions book. And there we see that taking the standard and changing it actually makes it better. So kind of going away from the, you know, top standard leaves room for for even more improvement. I mean, Harry seems to be the only student who's ever doing, like, independent study. Right, even the Occlumency in these these books. Occlumency um, with Lupin. I mean, mostly, is that detention or is it... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so how has this changed our idea of standard? Even by Harry's low standards in divination, the exam went very badly. I mean, the thing I'm thinking of is how Harry always has a different set of rules for him, right? Mm. Like that there is no standard that he connects to. There's always either it's more difficult or it's more exposing or actually he he's better at it or he needs extra help or he's getting extra help. Or I, I feel like Harry is never a standard student, which in some way is making me think about how actually no one is a standard student, right? And it's making me think and I'm now kind of transitioning into my drush, the third step. Great is really about like what would the message be based on on this text and I'm thinking about how just like Harry isn't a standard pupil actually none of us are standard you know when you look at the kind of average height weight palm size chest size head size all of those things there is not a single individual who has the standard for everything there's no average person there's a wonderful book called the end of average which kind of takes down the way in which our world is designed for an average and therefore kind of designed for no one Um, Mm. and it, it takes the story of how the fighter pilot cockpits were built for the average male body which meant that actually no one was able to fly it well certainly not women And so when they changed it so you could adjust your seat, you could adjust the height of things, the number of accidents and therefore deaths of of service personnel went way down. Mm. And so I'm just thinking about how this little insight into into Harry's exams actually speaks to all of us of not assuming average, like designing for difference. Yeah. I mean, and we just saw this again with the NASA spacesuits that were designed so that no women could actually go into space. I really love that. Drosh, I'm going to read it one more time to inspire myself. (laughs) Even by Harry's low standards in divination, the exam went very badly. I mean, I think I would speak one of my favorite books is the book Mindset by Carol Dweck. And she talks about a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And I think that if you believe, you know, I am an average math student, then you're never going to be pushing yourself and you're just going to think of yourself as an average math student. You will communicate that through all sorts of subliminal and overt ways. And therefore, like, you will realize that. Whereas if you have a growth mindset and you have, instead of saying I'm a bad math student, you say, I want to get better at math, 
you're going to have a totally different MO in asking teachers for help and asking for your neighbor to help you and like wanting more, you know, more work rather than trying to avoid it. And that when it comes to divination, when it comes to so much of Harry's life, he really has this fixed mindset and not a growth mindset. And so, of course, he doesn't do well in divination. If you have low standards, it's going to go badly, right? We think of low standards as a way to protect ourselves, but it's not. It sadly doesn't work that way. That's so true. Okay, so last step. We are going to ask ourselves what secret, what sowed emerges to us. Even by Harry's low standards in divination, the exam went very badly. Oh, my sowed is not a happy one. That's okay. Not all secrets are happy. I'm just thinking that, like, it can always get worse. Yeah. I looked back at an old book that was talking about ridiculous characters from the 80s, and it said, this guy was just like Donald Trump. And I was like, you have no idea. (laughs) You have no idea. This man is now president of the United States. And I might think, like, oh, we've scraped the barrel, you know, whether it's in our politics or whether it's in other areas of life. And I think my sode is like, no, it can always get worse. Yeah, I completely agree with that sode. The sode that emerged to me was the funny way that language works here, right? The exam went very badly. The exam didn't do anything. The exam is an inanimate object, right? (laughs) It's like a pre-written thing. And how destructive some of these language choices can be, right? These colloquialisms instead of... You know, if Harry had the language to say, even by Harry's low standards, he was surprised by how underprepared he was for a conversation about divination, right? I think that we create these narratives for ourselves that are really unhealthy and they're just like baked into our idioms. Well, it's easier to blame the exam than to blame yourself. Well, but it's not Harry's fault, right? He's like had had a switch teacher in the middle of the year. Nobody's ever been teaching toward a standard. This is not his fault. It is rarely students' faults that they aren't learning and excelling. It's the adults' faults. And I'm not saying he should be like, woe is me, but say like, He saw how desperate things got when Hermione wasn't there to, like, help subsidize the poor teaching quality at Hogwarts. I just think that this is a call to be more specific with our language because the exam didn't go badly. He got poorly taught. It's now time for a voicemail, and this week's voicemail is from Eric. Dear Casper and Vanessa, my name is Eric, and I'm from Ontario. I just discovered your podcast about six months ago and loved it, so... To get caught up, I've been listening to a lot of episodes out of order, and by sheer coincidence, I listened to your episode on A Peck of Owls from Book 5, immediately after listening to your episode on The Death Day Party from Book 2. The reason I bring this up is because those are the chapters where we learn that Mrs. Figs and Filch, respectively, are squibs. And I was struck by some of the similarities and differences between the two squibs. Like, for example, they both keep the fact that they are squib a secret, but for, like, really different reasons... Filch because he wants to present himself as an intimidating wizard and preserve his authority over the students, and Mrs. Fig because she wants to present herself as just a normal old lady and maintain her relationship with the Dursleys. Uh, and also, they're both serving Dumbledore, but for two different tasks. Filch's tasks are basically trivial, like keeping trash out of the halls and enforcing students' curfews, but the way he goes about these tasks makes them seem like much more important than they actually are. And Mrs. Fig's task is really important in the fight against Voldemort, but she performs it in a way that's actively demeaning to herself. She deliberately becomes this minor annoyance in Harry's life just to serve the greater purpose. 
And the more I thought about it, the less I pictured these characters as black and white, Filch bad, Mrs. Figs good. And instead, I saw Filch as this image of ambition, of trying to move above the situation you were born in. And I saw Mrs. Figs as an image of humility, of accepting your lot in life and trying to find satisfaction where you are. The two of them make surprisingly good foils for each other, even though they've never met. So I was just wondering if you guys had any thoughts about the two squibs, or if either of you saw them, one of them differently than I did, anything like that. Keep up the good work. Eric, I'm so glad that you point us to both Mrs. Fig and Filch, because Filch is having a real moment right now, right? In book five with Umbridge in charge, this is his heyday. And, and you know, he's bringing back all of these horrible punishments and things. But we haven't really dug into Filch in a little while. And I think, as you point out, both of them are really defined by their squib identity in a way, but they respond to it very differently. And the thing, I guess, that strikes me is that, you know, Vanessa, you've talked a lot about how, you know, hurt people hurt people, for example, the way in which we can assume that Filch has been denigrated and shamed for his lack of magical capacity means that he has chosen to put himself in a situation where he gets to denigrate and embarrass and like, you know, shame students for breaking rules. And Mrs. Fig, I wonder if she had a different experience. Like, was she was she nonetheless welcomed and loved in her most likely magical family and was still able to find ways to be of use, right? She's the perfect undercover agent in the muggle world. And so she serves the mission of, you know, the safety of, of Harry in that way. And so I'm just wondering, can we potentially deduce something about their backgrounds? I think that that is the right question and probably the right assumption. But the, you know, the difference in behavior is somebody deciding to find their difference beautiful and mm. a gift rather than somebody finding their difference to be shameful. Yeah. And regardless of why, I think we see it borne out in their actions. Like, and you speak very beautifully about, you know, how terrible shame is and how destructive it is. And I think we see Filch just living a life of shame. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone in this chapter. And who are you blessing this week? I'm going to be a little unconventional today. And I'm going to bless a dynamic duo of McGonagall and Fang. This scene really gets to me and it really speaks to me like very much of the stories that I grew up with of like Nazis coming in the night to take my family away. And we have a couple of positive stories about people and creatures that tried to intervene. And one of them is about my grandfather's dog, Dunny, who was a great Dane. And Dunny was the first Zoltan victim at the hands of the Nazis because he attacked the SS officers that came in to arrest my grandparents, and they shot him. And because of that, my family has like a very strong attachment to Great Danes and to dogs in general. And we see dogs as like this thing that will protect you righteously and bravely and that it is therefore our job to like steward them and what my grandparents didn't have was a was human backup but fang is like definitely hagrid's first defender and they are like coming in the night for his neighbor and fang is like no way and they stun him and mcgonagall's got his back and like the two of them are just standing up and literally putting their bodies on the line to fight danger. And it is a moment of absolute heroism. And it is just, I pray that if I am ever called to a moment like that, that I am half as heroic as Fang or McGonagall. 
So I would like to bless them. That's beautiful. Now I understand why you like dogs. The first thing my grandparents did when they like got a house after they found each other after the war was get a dog. And then my dad's first words were calling the dog. Mm. So dogs loom very large in our family. So Casper, who would you like to bless? Well, I'm going to bless Hagrid. So this makes the full team. I mean, for so many things, right? The moment when he stops to pick up Fang's body, which has been stunned and is unmoving, and he puts it around his shoulders and holds him by his legs to walk off the way in which I'm sure he could sense this moment was coming. I mean, we know he knew this moment was coming. He's prepared Harry and Hermione to look after Grop. I'm sure he's already, you know, picked out an escape route and hopefully found a way to connect with Dumbledore in some way. But it's just so... It's like the moment when you know that you're going to be disappointed by the world and then it happens and you're like, oh, yeah, this is what the world is like. And so I guess for anyone who feels like their worst expectations of other people or our society or, or, yeah, just what happens to us when that comes true and like you make it out alive, but you have been jinxed and stung and hurt and the people you love are, are hurt as well. I I just feel for him so much in this chapter. Yeah. He's thrown out again of his only home. Yeah. So my blessing for Hagrid. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks to Maggie for managing it so fantastically. You can join our wonderful Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode or share reflections that you have, and come and join the hundreds of people supporting us on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you. You can leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, and we hope very much to see you at one of our live shows in Holyoke Mass on May 8th, Vanessa and Ariana on May 14th in Massachusetts, and Vanessa will also be in London and Paris. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 32, Out of the Fire, through the theme of Redemption. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was executive produced by Ariana Nettleman and edited by Chelsea Urson, with editing support from Ariana Martinez. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are part of Night Vale Presents. Thanks to Eric for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy and her front tooth for all her help, Maggie Needham, Danny Agin, and our wonderful mentor, Stephanie Bullsell. And this episode is dedicated to all the great dogs out there. You know, when <laughs> whenever I had to write an essay for French, I would always like situate it at a restaurant called Chez Christophe. <laughs> like everything happened at Chez Christophe's. <laughs> well, now we make a lot of jokes about your drag name is Pat Issery. That's right. Victoire Patisserie. Right. Victoire Patri- Oh, I thought it was Pat. Yeah. Maybe it's Pat Issery. Maybe it's Victoire Patisserie. We don't know yet.